we really, really noticed the need, not just within, so our, our communities, really within public health and public safety uh, at large, is that there, there was a need for some sort of program that would be able to uh, gather all this information about substances that are on the market. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Narcotica. I'm Christopher Moraff, reporting from Philadelphia. Over the past five years, a new wave of synthetic drugs has wrought havoc on American communities as a new generation of freelance entrepreneur has been using people who inject drugs as unwitting guinea pigs for a new and more powerful and profitable high. Their bathtub chemistry is guided by trial and error, the results of which have left law enforcement, public health officials, harm reduction advocates, and even doctors scratching their heads as they struggle to decipher the latest side effects. Over the past 12 months alone, these have included palsy-like rigidity in the hands and arms of some drug users, an outbreak of necrotic skin lesions, and a troubling rise in the number of people who inject drugs, losing consciousness, or wandering into traffic in a state of semi-consciousness. Into this intellectual void, forensic toxicologists have emerged as the new rock stars of public health. As they labor to decipher the latest synthetic drug trends, their goal is to head off the next overdose or poisoning event before it happens. Today on the show, I'll be speaking with Alex Kratowski. He's Associate Director of the nonprofit Center for Forensic Science Research and Education, which is the academic and research arm of NMS Labs. Kratowski was instrumental in identifying the synthetic cannabinoid that sickened hundreds of injection drug users in Philadelphia in July 2018 after several suppliers used the substance to potentiate their heroin. He recently launched a new initiative that uses mass spectrometry to actually test retail-level street drugs in real time to ascertain trends in the composition of retail drugs. Full disclosure... I helped advise this program on its inception and still occasionally provide samples for the tests. With that, Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Alex, uh, as the overdose crisis has intensified, forensic toxicology has sort of come into the limelight, and forensic toxicologists like yourself are kind of the rock stars now of deciphering the trends of this synthetic influx and determining what analogs are causing the most problems, what's next on the horizon, and even, in some cases, where these substances or compounds are originating. Why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about your background and what the past uh, five years has been like for you as the overdose crisis has has intensified? Yeah. Uh, So I've been working for a toxicologist for about the last six years. Uh, I would say that just in the uh, and certain, certainly the, the current climate of uh, of the U.S. Uh, drug market, I think toxicologists are increasingly being called on uh, really as educators almost for the public and for the uh, greater scientific community to really understand the implications of these drugs within biological specimens or, or organisms or drug materials, whatever it may be. Um, so we really are, uh, at least I would say for myself, serving as educators for, like I said, uh, the, the public, for other scientists, for whoever that wants to to really understand 
sort of all the different aspects that go into into the drug market and into the drugs themselves. So so it is a, certainly an exciting field. I, I love my job. I, I love being a forensic toxicologist. Um, I wouldn't sort of imagine myself being anywhere else. Um, and in that role, I think that we have, and through our training as forensic toxicologists, really have a great, really have a great tool set uh, in the sort of different areas that we're uh, learning about and gaining knowledge through. So we have uh, generally as forensic toxicologists, we have very strong analytical backgrounds. Uh, we have understanding of pharmacology, so how how drugs can affect humans or other other organisms. And then sort of the last piece is trying to connect different different other pieces of information together, whether it may be case histories, autopsy findings, um, and trying to pull all that information together, uh, figure out what we think our interpretation is based on our training, based on the literature, um, putting all that information together. So um, so we definitely, I mean, myself included, I, I definitely enjoy doing this and I definitely enjoy trying to, to decipher this very complex science, uh, really for anyone who's interested. So I've talked about this before in my writing and, and also here on Narcotica. Oftentimes there are conclusions made based on toxicology results, um, postmortem toxicology results. We had sort of this uh, media frenzy around fentanyl and cocaine for a while. Um, that sort of abated and um, almost invariably uh, it led back to a toxicology result from a, from a, a person that had fatally overdosed. What, what are the limitations of that in, in doing your work? And, and I guess as an addendum to that, have you ever been called to testify in a case? And, and is, is that something you would point out? Like you can't, can you really assess how somebody died based on what's in their blood? Uh, well, certainly there are, um, are limitations just based on the information that we have. Uh, as a forensic toxicologist, our uh, our sort of role, our responsibility is to take all the information that we have and be able to uh, use our training and, and use our uh, experience to be able to provide an opinion or to provide uh, sort of some context to a case. That being said, I mean, uh, really for, for any death, no one's really there at the time of death. Generally, scientific studies aren't being done on an, uh, on an individual as they die. So, um, so it is a bit more complicated than I think many people might think, especially uh, in this sort of age of, of drug use, when you have uh, when you have individuals who are de- generally using more than one substance, it's it's very rare to find just uh, just one drug in, in a person's system. Uh, they may be using drugs for a long period of time. There's a lot of different things that can happen, and a lot of different pieces of information that have to come together more than just the toxicology results. Things like uh, disease or other factors that are found in autopsy. So there definitely are uh, limitations. Uh, Justin, really, like I said, not being there, you're not there at the time of death. Uh, sometimes you don't have a full case history to understand how a person, uh, how a person died or, or what they were doing before their death. Uh, there are certainly other factors that happen after death as well that can complicate the, the role of a toxicologist. But, uh, but really, it, it comes together as a, a toxicologist, as I said, background and, and expertise and being able to take all that information, say, uh, and really compare it to, to other cases that they've evaluated or other cases that have been reported in the literature and, and sort of what has happened uh, prior there too. So, um, so it is, I mean, this is something that I always talk, uh, talk with my family and friends about. Uh, being a forensic toxicologist is a very complex science. Uh, it's not uh, it's not easy at all. There's a lot of factors that go into it. And, and likewise, being a pathologist and a medical examiner is, is very complex. And a lot of factors go into these certifications of death uh, when you're trying to determine cause and manner of death. Uh, it's not it's not as um, clear cut in some cases uh, as some people may think. 
Yeah, and it, and it's particularly um, important now that we're seeing a rise in uh, drug-induced homicide charges. Uh, if somebody, you know, in a polysubstance uh, overdose crisis like we have, really, um, if somebody presents with um, fentanyl, alprazolam, and cocaine, like what you know, what caused the death? You always defer to like the most powerful drug um, in there, or would or would it be presented as a combination of these drugs? And if so, how could they make the case, right? Um, so that's definitely a, a question that toxicologists are asked a lot nowadays, just because of the nature of uh, polydrug or polysubstance use. Um, sort of uh, what is the, as many people will say, what is the straw that broke the camel's back? What was the, what was the drug that actually caused death? But, but for what would the individual sort of still be alive? Um, and there's, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, one of which is certainly the drugs that are identified. Uh, when you have drugs that span multiple different drug classes, you have to start thinking about um, how drugs uh, can interact, whether positively or negatively when, when on board, when in someone's system. You have to take into account things like potency. Just because a drug or just because a substance is found doesn't mean that um, it's necessarily going to have the effect that you, that you think it will or that, uh, that other drugs in that same category will have based on things like potency and efficacy. In relation to that, you have to consider how much of the drug is found. Uh, sometimes it can be a very large amount of the drug. Sometimes it can be a very small amount. Uh, and, the, and the terms large and small are really related to how potent is the substance. Because uh, certainly uh, a large amount of uh, something like morphine is very different uh, from a small amount of something like carfentanil, just based on their differences uh, in potency. So, uh, so it's really taking all that information together. Uh, when you think about scenarios where you have something like fentanyl, which is an opioid, alprazolam, which is a benzodiazepine, and cocaine, which is a stimulant, um, with, without any further context, you certainly can't say which, which is responsible for the death. Um, you have to understand uh, maybe some information about uh, the drug materials where these substances taken together. Uh, you have to understand some sort of information about uh, maybe how much the drug is taken and, and maybe you can uh, assess that through drug material purities or maybe you can assess that through uh, information of if someone was with the individual uh, when they were using the substance. Uh, you might be able to assess that through things like concentrations in their blood uh, after death. Um, so, so there's a lot of different factors that go into it. Uh, as I mentioned before, it's, it's really complex. You can't just automatically assume that you have an individual who is deceased that is automatically the opioid that caused their death. There's a lot of other factors that go into it. It's not just our role as a, as a toxicologist. We do work with, as I said before, medical examiners to, to sort of piece all that information together. Um, yeah, I ran into this um, this issue with with the fentanyl test strips. Um, I, I kept coming up with, when I was when I was strip testing on, on the street. I was getting a lot of positive cocaine and, and it took a while for me to realize just how sensitive those, those strips are. I mean, they're extremely sensitive. Uh, 20 NL, um, I think is, is probably as low as it gets that I've seen. And so I, I think I was, I couldn't figure out why I was picking up positives, but nobody was dying. Right. And I think it was just like, like the littlest cross contamination could, could, um, could present as a, as a positive, even though it's, it was in such a low concentration. Yeah, absolutely. When you when you think about uh, so those test strips are, are generally developed for biological samples. Uh, when individuals use a uh, powder, uh, that drug is dispersed throughout their body. The amount of drug is sort of diluted in that process, if you will. Uh, and then by the time it gets to the urine uh, in the bladder, it may collect a little bit, but generally the amount that's needed for a positive test there is going to be so much smaller than the amount that can be in a powder. So something like cross-contamination can very easily uh, play, a, play a role uh, in a positive result like that.
so let's talk a little bit about um, the diversity of, of drug markets. I mean, one of the things that's that's really presented itself to me as a, as a you know as an aha moment was just how regionally specific drug markets can be. You know, Pittsburgh is is vastly different than Philadelphia. You know, Ohio, which saw a spike in carfentanil deaths, is vastly different than Philadelphia, where we saw very little of carfentanil, um, and it came in late in the game. I think one of the big things that's popped up more recently is is the um, amount of xylazine, which is a, a large animal sedative that's being used as a cutting agent in uh, Philadelphia street heroin, which has transitioned to mostly fentanyl, it seems like. So let's just like talk about xylazine a little bit. I know you put out like a, a, a memo on it, um, an informational sheet. Can you talk about what xylazine is and why it's problematic? Sure. Um, so I will just say, just backing up a second, that that I very much enjoy talking about regional trends of drug uh, drug use. Um, there's a lot of different factors that go into it. I could probably talk about it for hours. <laughs> I won't right now, but uh, but yeah, when you think about the distribution of drugs, whether it may be um, through large cities, up interstates, um, sort of why Pittsburgh looks different from Philadelphia is Philadelphia's drug supply coming up the East Coast, and Pittsburgh is coming uh, more from the Midwest from the Chicago area. Uh, there's a lot of different factors that go into that, and um, we're seeing that sort of play out currently. We we have we've seen regional drug trends here in Philadelphia that we're not seeing anywhere else. Um, right now, the the one main example is synthetic cannabinoids. We're seeing different synthetic cannabinoids here in Philadelphia than we than we were uh, places like Florida and, and Texas and Indiana. Um, but to to go to go back to to xylazine, so xylazine um, is sort of an example of this uh, sort of differences in drug trends. Um, and when we think about when we think about, I guess, going back in the history of xylazine, Philadelphia and this area was really uh, really a, a hotspot for xylazine uh, and its a sort of, I guess, adulteration or, or cutting uh, with fentanyl samples. Uh, certainly, you've covered that a lot throughout all of your different all of your different reporting and, and podcasts. Uh, but xylazine now is is really not a localized thing within this area, at least this metropolitan area of Philadelphia and New York and Baltimore and whatnot. Uh, we have a lot of colleagues who uh, now in Texas, out in California, who are telling us they're seeing uh, that they're seeing xylazine and that they're seeing it in increasing numbers. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but xylazine uh, certainly is of of great interest right now, just for a number of reasons within the within the drug supply. So xylazine is, for all intents and purposes, really a cutting agent for heroin or for fentanyl. Uh, there's some indication that it may not have only been used with uh, with fentanyl, but used in the past uh, with heroin. Uh, it is a sort of a known drug. It's a sedative. It's been uh, used in veterinary medicine, something that is uh, probably, well, it's at least out there. It's not something that maybe you have to, uh, to make up uh, or synthesize yourself uh, or get someone else to synthesize. Uh, a clandestine lab, it's something that can be uh, maybe easily uh, sort of acquired. I don't know too much about uh, the acquisition of these uh, of xylazine within that within the supply, but um, but yeah, we're definitely seeing it now um, a lot within our fentanyl samples or our heroin samples, and then also in toxicology data. Uh, so sometimes it's it's a small amount of xylazine that's mixed in with the heroin or the the fentanyl. And I, I should just note, I, I when I say heroin, I mean uh, heroin that is the powder. It could be heroin, it could be fentanyl, it could be any other synthetic opioid. Uh, but that is the the terminology that I use. <laughs> I generally say dope because it's, yeah. it's that's the street term, and is you, you never know what it is nowadays. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I will say dope's not necessarily in my vocabulary, but uh, right. I'll try to use it for this. Just to, just to, <laughs> you know. 
Um, but yeah, so xylosine is certainly found uh, in these dose samples uh, at differing levels. Sometimes it's uh, a lot greater than the amount of fentanyl uh, that's in there. Sometimes it's roughly equivalent to the amount of fentanyl that's in there. Um, and certainly there's other things as well uh, that are mixed in with these samples that are uh, that are used as sort of adulterants or cutting agents, whatever you uh, want to call them. But um, so, so fentanyl itself is an opioid. Uh, obviously, in, in that respect, it has depressant effects. Uh, xylosine as well has uh, sort of sedative effects, and and there's some indication that there's that there's a some sort of positive, I guess, uh, reaction to to having those together. And whether or not it potentiates the high, whether or not it makes a a product that's uh, more more liked by users, but for for a toxicologist, it's really uh, really brought up a lot of questions for us as to really well, what is the significance of of uh, of xylosine? Uh, we're now we're, there. There are mixed reports that xylosine may have uh, positive impact or positive um, reaction to uh, naloxone. I don't think uh, anyone would uh, sort of jump that hurdle and say with one hundred percent certainty. But certainly, there are people that believe it, it may, and there are people that believe it. May. Really, I, I haven't heard that. So there's there's a theory that that naloxone could could uh, like block it in some way? Um, yeah, certainly more research needs to be done. I think that uh, from the indication of what we've heard from, from users is that, that likely, especially when you have a large amount of, uh, of xylosine, that the naloxone doesn't seem to be having all that much of an effect because um, they're still feeling that, that, that sedative effect. But, um, but yeah, that is sort of uh, some of the information that people talk about when they talk about uh, xylosine. Um, so the, the sort of the depression effects of, of the fentanyl and the sedative effects of the xylosine, uh, from a from a toxicological perspective, I don't think we really have uh, an answer right now. If you have a very large amount of xylosine, you have a sort of a lower range of, of fentanyl in the sample. Is uh, is the xylosine contributory or is it not? I think that's something that we're we're trying to evaluate. Certainly, clinical toxicologists and medical toxicologists uh, have dealt with this drug before. Have probably learned about it in their schooling. Uh, us as forensic toxicologists, we're learning about it uh, really through our through our casework and through our eyes as we start to see more and more of it uh, within the supply. Uh, it's definitely a, a cause for concern, especially now with its uh, sort of its wide reach across the United States. Something that's always sort of boggled my mind, and I don't have an answer to this, but um, something that's always boggled my mind is that there has to be some reason why xylosine has remained in the supply and become so ubiquitous. Uh, certainly there has to be either some sort of positive uh, reaction or has to be a, a, some sort of stockpile. It's easy to get uh, easy to get a hold of because uh, that's not going away. We've, we've seen several different adulterants and cutting agents used with heroin and fentanyl over time. Uh, and the fact that this has really gained a very strong hold and, and gained a, a national presence has to say something about its uh, its effects or its desirability. And, and when, to be clear, when we say cutting agent here, this is this is a mood altering substance, but it's not a cutting agent like mannitol or something like that, which is literally just a cutting agent, but it, it's cut in it does provide a, 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 a mood altering, you know, effect. And from the street perspective, um, largely like not pursued, largely not something people like, certainly in, in large numbers. Um, I hear people complain uh, frequently about it. And now with the, with the problems that are caused in the site, in the injection site, from, because of the vasoconstricting properties of the drug, I've been told, um, it uh, it's caused a lot of problems with people and they generally don't like it. But, you know, when fentanyl came, that was sort of imposed on the, on the, on the masses too. I mean, for a while people were looking for heroin and now everybody wants fentanyl, you know, it, it changed the taste of, of the marketplace. And um, 
I guess uh, one thing that sort of always boggled my mind is that, you know, in a city where marijuana is largely like legal for the most part decriminalized, people are still trending to K2 and synthetic cannabinoids, which carry felony, uh, which carries a felony charge for mere possession. What do you know about these synthetic cannabinoids? And, and I should preface that by saying you and I sort of became in communication um, in 2018 after um, it was uh, discovered that suppliers were adulterating the dopes, the dope then with um, 5-FADB, which is a type of synthetic cannabinoid. Maybe you can jump back and talk about like the, the, the circumstances surrounding that outbreak and, and how you and your lab were involved in deciphering it. And then uh, launch into like what was the what's the allure of these synthetic cannabinoids? Yeah, uh, so I guess this was back in the late summer of 2018, uh, if my brain is correct. Um, we we were hearing reports, uh, really through the media actually, that there were increased overdose events occurring uh, within the city within one weekend. It was something that. Uh, usually when these overdose events occur, they, they occur in large numbers. They, uh, they attract media attention. Information is, is dispersed out generally for the good. Fortunately, sometimes uh, there is a negative side effect of that. But, uh, in our case, it was for the good and that we were able to hear about these uh, events that were occurring. Uh, at the time, we had really just gotten a lot of our testing capabilities up and running, uh, here at the, uh, the Center for Forensic Science Research and Education. Um, and through through just our capabilities and through, through some of our contacts, we sat down and we said, well, what can we do to help? There was there was clearly a, a need in doing testing. We weren't really sure at the time uh, if individuals who were presenting to emergency departments, if they would get analytical testing. We weren't sure where seized material, uh, seized drug material, the heroin packets, where they would end up, what law enforcement division and how, how rapidly they'd be able to get that information. So we sort of sprung into action and, and it was it was a little bit delayed. The, the overdoses were occurring, I think, Friday and Saturday and into Sunday. Uh, we were able to really get on board by Monday. Uh, but we were able to reach out to our contacts uh, within some of the hospitals within the city, as well as some of the uh, law enforcement agencies uh, out here in Montgomery County. Uh, we were able to get uh, our, our um, sort of a hold of uh, some powder to be able to test. Uh, and at that time, uh, we were one of the, the additional uh, sort of interests or interesting pieces about testing this material. And the reason why we wanted it is there were such differing reports about what could potentially be in the powder. Uh, so you had individuals in the city who were experiencing overdose events. Um, EMS was coming, administering the Loxone. Uh, and rather than sort of reversing the opioid depression and, and, and getting back to sort of, I guess, more normalcy for the individuals, they were coming, becoming very combative, uh, which is not generally seen uh, when naloxone is used for, for reversing these opioid overdoses. Uh, there was a lot of speculation as to why that could be happening, and we knew that the only way to get to the answer was to get a hold of the material and get it tested. So we uh, we got a hold of the material, were able to get it tested, and, and get those results reported out uh, right after the weekend. Um, and that information was shared with a whole bunch of different stakeholders, public health, public safety, with uh, people like you uh, that were sort of part of our team. Actually, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if we were in contact back then or not. Uh, but certainly the information got out to, uh, or tried at least to get out to everyone. And, and we found that it was, and this was back, uh, in 2018 at the time where, uh, when heroin and, and fentanyl were still, or heroin was still in a supply and it was being mixed with fentanyl. So this powder, uh, was actually a mixture of heroin and fentanyl. And we found that there was a small amount of 5-4-ADB, uh, which you mentioned is a synthetic cannabinoid present in the sample. Uh, it wasn't a very large amount. Uh, it wasn't certainly the same amount of fentanyl. 
uh, sort of a minor component, and, and we can talk about this a little bit later about why it's important to identify these minor components in powders because they can clearly have effects that are of interest. Uh, but you had this minor uh, component of 5-4-ADB and synthetic cannabinoids. They have uh, they they do not have the same. They have some of the same properties as as THC and, and cannabis, but they have very different properties. Uh, some of which can be things like agitation and um, sort of behaviors that aren't necessarily expected uh, with cannabis. So, uh, yeah, so through that testing, we were able to confirm that 5,4-ADB was in the samples. Uh, we were able to then get um, clinical samples from the hospitals and determine that uh, those serum samples did also contain the same drugs um, and sort of correlate correlate all of that uh, and be able to and be able to really figure out that uh, what this what this drug material looked like and, and what some of the implications were on the clinical side. Uh, and and since uh, I will say that since we have not seen as many of those combinations around that same time when we saw this powder of heroin, fentanyl, and 5-4-ADB, we were seeing other other uh, mixtures with synthetic cannabinoids, uh, generally that same synthetic cannabinoid, uh, which happened to be the most prevalent at the time. So it's not surprising that it was in there. Uh, so around that time, we, we were seeing it uh, in some other powders. But since we have not uh, seen this combination of of dope with uh, with synthetic cannabinoids. So, um, so that's sort of the history there and, and what sort of propelled a lot of our, our work into this area. Um, but as I mentioned, um, it really is important to, to see those minor components. Uh, something like, a like a, like a fentanyl test strip would not have given you that answer. You would have had no idea that there were additional synthetic psychoactive drugs in these, uh, in these dope samples. There is no strip for for the more complex, like, you know, eighth generation synth cans. I mean, you can get the JW ones, I yeah. think, in, in a strip. But, uh, you, know, you know, I don't think you even see those anymore much. So, yeah, right. there's, there would be no way of... And from a harm reduction perspective, it really, it really kind of presented a conundrum because these really were poisonings more than overdoses, I say. I call them poisonings. And in some cases, I think giving the naloxone, like, ripped, ripped the fentanyl out but left the synth synthetic cannabinoid which sort of like made people even more agitated you know i mean you know whatever whatever was sedating them now gone they could experience the full trip so to speak right no i mean that's that's definitely a good point i mean i think that's that's why you see some clinicians say that there's different ways to sort of give naloxone especially when when you're in the hospital it's a lot different but uh being able to to give naloxone to arousal versus sort of breathing uh, do you want the person to be fully aroused or do you just want to make sure they're breathing so they don't die so there's definitely definitely different sides to that and i think for the most part when you're doing this in the field when ems arrives they're generally going to give uh, enough, enough naloxone that's going to re- completely revive the person uh to sort of a, an awakened state and, and that's your right uh, that's when the synthetic cannabinoids will still have that effect. And that's not going to be something that's reversed uh, by naloxone. So this sort of like created, I guess, an idea in your head to, to, to do something that's kind of unusual. And, and I don't want to say radical, but it's, it's, it's not something that a lot of, a lot of private labs will do on their own. And you're a nonprofit, I know, but, but you started a, a program testing in real time drug samples to see what the composition is and, and sort of, ascertain trend lines and hopefully predict the next, you know, uh, uh, crisis before it happens if possible. So um, would you talk a little bit about that and, and um, uh, how that got off the ground? Yeah. Uh, so me and my colleagues, we 
really, really noticed a need uh, within, not just within, so our, our community, certainly the forensic science community, but not just within the forensic science community, really within public health and public safety uh, at large, is that there, there was a need for some sort of program that would be able to gather all this information about substances that are on the market, whether they be new and emerging substances. A lot of our focus has been on new and emerging substances, of which fentanyl was at one point a new and emerging substance when it was first uh, sort of being uh, mixed into the heroin supply uh, differently than it was used in clinical settings. So um, that was uh, sort of some of the early indications there, but we knew that there was some sort of uh, need and, and laboratories wanted to know sort of what the market looked like. Uh, so we, we developed this program and our program is uh, it's, it's expanded over the years. It's, uh, it's got a lot of different aspects to it. Um, but we identified really three main areas that we wanted to be focused on. Uh, we have a, uh, as forensic toxicologists, we certainly have a, a large background in forensic toxicology and have access to forensic toxicology samples. Uh, so that was the one piece we wanted to know. Um, sort of what, what substances were appearing in these postmortem investigations. Um, the next was uh, understanding clinical investigations. So, so through t- uh, postmortem data, you can you can understand what drugs are present when someone uh, dies, but um, you don't necessarily get a, a feel for what drugs are causing harm, uh, but don't result in death. So, uh, we have many clinical collaborations now to get that sort of piece uh, to figure out. Uh, what substances are present when people are uh, admitted to hospital or, or, or they present to the emergency department. Uh, and then the last piece was this sort of drug material piece. And you need all three to really be able to truly understand and assess uh, the impact of a drug on the market. Because like I said, not all drugs result in death. Certainly some are some do uh, or have more likelihood to. It seems that way with uh, the opioids, but certainly you have many opioids that people are using that don't. Uh, that don't result in death. Not every time an individual uses fentanyl, obviously, uh, results in death. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of information that you can get from all these different sources, and and we wanted to make sure that our program had a focus on these drug materials. Um, and as I mentioned before, uh, it needed to be a way where you could actually characterize everything that was in the substance. We didn't want to just know, okay, is X, Y, or Z positive for fentanyl? That's not enough. That doesn't answer the questions. Uh, what else is in there? Is there xylosine in there? Because that's going to be important. Is there synthetic cannabinoids in there? That's equally going to be as important. Um, so this program that we've developed uh, has uh, sort of, we we have a bunch of different collaborators and uh, we work through this sort of drug material environment uh, in different ways. Uh, but really the goal is to assess truly what, uh, what these uh, drug materials look like. Uh, certainly, it's not going to answer everything. It's not going to answer if, if an individual has two powders, they take powder one, and then they take powder two. Uh, the, the, our answers of just uh, looking at drug materials isn't going to answer that, but we can capture some of that information in our toxicology data. But that was really the sort of the genesis and, and where this all came about. And, and now we have very robust and reliable testing methods. Uh, we have a, a very large database of, of accurate scientific data, which we're able to now answer some of these complex questions with. And we think uh, our program really has a very uh, sort of comprehensive look at these drug materials. Um, we So we have uh, testing methods that we use in-house. Uh, those are used for a number of different things, our toxicology samples. Uh, again, some of these drug materials that we get from different collaborators. Uh, we're able to test them through this uh, this approach. Our, our library database has more than 900 drugs in it. So as you can imagine, there's, there's certainly not 900 drugs on the, uh, on the market at a given time. Uh, but there are uh, some that are important and some that we sort of forecast and, and are, are expecting to be present. And we're able to use these methods, figure out what's in the samples, um, and then really assess what the, uh, 
uh, what the overall impact is. So, um, so is it is it that there's a very large amount of X, Y, or Z in the powder, or is it a small amount? Uh, and this is something that we do uh, very commonly with dope samples. Is it is it a large amount of heroin that's uh, got a small amount of fentanyl in it, or vice versa? Is it a large amount of fentanyl that just has a small amount of uh, heroin in it, uh, and maybe that's not really the primary drug that's there? Uh, and then the good thing that we've been able to assess uh, and give us a lot of answers about are like I said before, what else is in there that's not expected? So if you have a dope sample uh, and you detect fentanyl, uh, that's fine. Now, But now what's in there that, that we didn't expect? What other cutting agents are in there? And um, we do the same thing for things like methamphetamine and cocaine samples. We're able to assess and say, uh, okay, so we have this cocaine sample. What is it cut with? Uh, and is there anything else in there? And our, our yeah. methods are very sensitive and we're able to, to, to characterize that pretty accurately. Yeah, I mean, I was looking over your results, and I think what, what jumped out at me the most is that with the exception of the dope, pretty much you get what you pay for. Uh, the cocaine may have a lidocaine or something in it. Methamphetamine appears to be methamphetamine <laughs> without any anything really else in it. And um, it's really the dope where the problem is. And um, and I think you also discovered, or, or if not discovered, like found it here in this region, like a, a new synthetic cannabinoid. We, we've moved on from 5-FADB. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, the synthetic cannabinoid market uh, since 2018 has definitely shifted. It's gone through many iterations uh, as some substances uh, become scheduled, new substances emerge, uh, and we sort of track that over time. So yes, the, the most, or at least the, the substance we're detecting right now in Philadelphia is, is ADB Binaca. Um, we're at the point now where these synthetic cannabinoids, certainly they have, they have differences. Generally, they're all quite potent drugs. Uh, they can have uh, sort of adverse reactions. Uh, they're not too different in that sense. Uh, they all have very similar structures and, and can sort of have very similar effects. Um, I think the one thing that I would add is is that, uh, yes, you're right. The, the, I think all of the cocaine and methamphetamine samples that we've gotten so far um, have just been sort of what they're uh, rep- or sort of sold as. Uh, we haven't seen any fentanyl in those samples. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's, there's not. Um, slight cross-contamination or any contamination of fentanyl in these samples where uh, we're looking to try and get more data on that and see if if that really is a problem, but we have not seen that yet um, within our data from the city of Philadelphia. Uh, and then the last thing I would add is, um, well, I guess two more things. Uh, the second is that, um, that, the, that the dope samples, there really is, uh, sometimes it seems like sort of a lot more variability there. And I think that's why you get all these different cutting agents uh, and whatnot. Um, heroin itself is not like methamphetamine, right? Methamphetamine is one drug. Heroin samples are generally several drugs. You have this product that's refined from, from the opium poppy. You have the, the products that are acetylated from morphine. You have all the other sort of pieces of the opium plant that come over in that process. So uh, sometimes they aren't just single drug cases. And uh, the same goes with fentanyl. We see fentanyl with other byproducts, uh, sometimes additional opioids in there that, that may have some significance or may not, um, and then a number of cutting agents. And then the last thing I just wanted to add was that we have seen a decent amount of counterfeit uh, substances, whether it be counterfeit uh, Xanax bars uh, that test positive for uh, additional benzodiazepines that aren't alprazolam. Uh, we've seen uh, ecstasy tablets that, that do not contain MDMA, but that contain methamphetamine. Uh, we've seen uh, counterfeit oxycodone pills that contain uh, other opioids and oxycodone. Uh, so there certainly is sort of that. Uh, I think when you're, like you said, when you're buying cocaine and methamphetamine, it, it seems like that's what you're getting. But when you are buying these pills, 
uh, these pressed pills or tablets or bars, uh, some of them can be uh, highly different than maybe what some individuals are expecting. Yeah. And, and I guess I'd say, you know, the good news there is that the fear of fentanyl laced everything has, has kind of been, been, at least in these initial findings, proven to be just that, a fear. Um, even the pressed pills suppliers have figured out that there are unscheduled benzodiazepine analogs that they can use, which may not be alprazolam, but are probably giving people a very similar effect, uh, d- depending upon the, the dosage, I suppose. That, and that's really the problem, the dosage var- variability. Um, is, is um, you know, you don't know what potency you're getting, right? And um, but uh, for a while, you know, people were terrified of of uh, dying from a, a, a Xanax tab. You know, and uh, like I was happy to see that that none came up with fentanyl in them. And there's also been a, a street myth that's persisted for years of um, bath salts in the coke. And uh, again, that that didn't seem to present itself either. Yeah, I mean, if that if that is happening, it's certainly not happening at a very large level. I mean, it may be happening in certain regions across the, the U.S. As we talked about, the the drug landscape is very different regionally. So it could be happening in certain areas. It could be a batch here, a batch there, but uh, but it does not seem to be happening on a wide scale, uh, on a wide scale manner. Now you did you did, uh, and, and we'll wrap up after this. But you did discover uh, that there is um, fluorofentanyl um, in a lot of the samples, and that's an analog. It's pretty potent, as I understand. Um, why is that particularly revealing? Is that something you hadn't seen before? Yeah, uh, so this is could probably be a podcast or, a, or a, an episode or whatever on its own. Um, but because <laughs> there's a lot of information that goes into parafluorofentanil, um, really, and and the DEA has, has alluded to some of this, and, and some of our federal partners will uh, have some information that's out there about it. But uh, but so so parafluorofentanil, uh, it is a fentanyl analog. It is, uh, it is roughly the same potency as fentanyl. Uh, so it's not, not something like carfentanil or three methyl fentanyl. It is roughly the same potency as fentanyl. I mean, it could have a little bit different of effects on people. That's something I think that probably needs to be studied or determined. Um, but really, um, fent- uh, parafluorofentanil is different from other fentanyl analogs and synthetic opioids that, that we've seen in the past. Generally, uh, sort of the, the word has been that um, these fentanyl analogs we saw previously were coming from China. Um, and I think a lot, uh, you can certainly track the sort of the, the reduction in those fentanyl analogs, both with core structure scheduling by the DEA and some, uh, some bands that were, uh, that were implemented in China. And that's not to say that they're all coming from China. They certainly can be coming from other countries as well. But I don't think really previously with fentanyl analogs, there was any indication that they were coming from a place like Mexico. And now sort of the introduction of, of parafluorofentanil has really brought up a lot of questions as to, to where it's coming from. Uh, the fentanyl analogs that we saw prior were generally relatively pure. Uh, certainly sometimes they were mixed with fentanyl. Um, but like I said, after core structure scheduling by the DEA, fentanyl analogs largely, largely went away. Um, and now for some reason, uh, roughly uh, a year or however long it's been, a year and a half since core structure scheduling, we're seeing this emergence of parafluorofentanil. Uh, we've seen parafluorofentanil in a, in a variety of forms. We've seen it in a counterfeit oxycodone tablet um, by itself uh, without fentanyl. Uh, we've seen it uh, mixed with fentanyl into the into the dope samples. And really, uh, there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered about parafluorofentanil. Uh, from a toxicology perspective, uh, you certainly have to evaluate the amount of parafluorofentanil to fentanyl. 
Uh, they certainly can't be added, just the numbers can't just simply be added together. However, if it's a very small amount of parafluorofentanil and a larger amount of fentanyl, you can have, you can have some, some certainty that the fentanyl itself is probably more significant than the parafluorofentanil and vice versa. If you have a large amount of parafluorofentanil, uh, might be more significant than the fentanyl. But, but I bring up the, the, the point of these powders, uh, these fentanyl oil powders before being relatively pure and that what we are seeing now is that parafluorofentanil is very commonly found with fentanyl, either in powder form or in, in the toxicology samples. Uh, and there is some indication that the precursor chemicals that are used to make parafluorofentanil uh, are the same precursor chemicals that are being used to create fentanyl. Uh, and the, the DEA down in Arizona put out a, a news story a little bit while, a little while back. And, and I think in there speculated that uh, from their understanding that this parafluorofentanil was coming from Mexico. And I would say that certainly our data uh, may support that. It's something that we're continuing to, to monitor. After the DEA moved forward with core structure scheduling, they and all the fentanyl analogs went away, uh, they then turned uh, to finding a way to, to continue to uh, sort of regulate or ban uh, the synthesis of fentanyl uh, because you, uh, you, you may have these precursors coming from overseas coming through the United States or, or going directly to Mexico. The cartels are using those precursors, uh, manufacturing it into fentanyl and fentanyl is coming up across the Southwest border into the United States. Um, so, so we certainly have data that shows that this parafluorofentanil is being made in the same way as fentanyl. Uh, the DEA um, did move to schedule some of the precursors that are used for the synthesis of fentanyl. Um, so it may be that the cartels uh, couldn't get the, the precursors that they wanted. So they now shifted uh, from those mm-hmm. precursors to these new fluorinated precursors, and the result is parafluorofentanil. Um, so I always caution people when we talk about parafluorofentanil that it should not be put into categories that things like isotinidazine and borphine, the, the opioids that, that have really wreaked havoc on the Midwest, uh, it's really not in that same category. We're seeing parafluorofentanil really uh, spaced across the United States. It's not sort of located around the Midwest as others are. Uh, and again, that's just another sign that really points to uh, points to this sort of connection with uh, potentially with uh, with Mexico. So I don't I don't have all the answers. I don't know what the future will look like. Unfortunately, I don't have a crystal ball that I can look into. I wish I did. I mean, certainly if things were going in the same direction they are now, one could predict maybe that parafluorofentanil will fully take the place of fentanyl. Is it possible? I don't know. I mean, fentanyl has a huge stronghold. I mean, the cartels producing fentanyl and 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 it's sort of uh, sort of grip on the opioid supply in the U.S. has a huge handle, and I don't, I don't know if that's something that can be overcome, uh, but it's certainly something that shouldn't be overlooked, um, and it's something that a lot of public health and public safety agencies are, are currently investigating, including us. We are, like you said, we're a nonprofit lab. We partner with state, federal, local, private, non-po- nonprofit, other uh, agencies, other labs, and this is something we're always talking about because uh, because really everyone needs to understand uh, sort of sort of how this is going and, and sort of the trajectory that we're on so that way we can evaluate the data uh, and do our best job to to draw the conclusions or to make an interpretation that's scientifically sound. Well, that's really interesting. Um, I remember when acetylfentanyl was showing up a lot. I did some research into that and it was it was, you know, some, you know, there was some theory there's it was hypothesized that they were using I guess acetyl uh, acid is an acid they were simulating the the fentanyl to reuse some of the the precursors that get left over in there and and that's why it was such a prevalence of it but that's 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 really fascinating that you're able to deduce origin you know based on that and certainly the the distribution throughout the 
throughout the U.S. rather than its localization in one place would would, would lend itself to to that um, being true. Right. Well, um, I want to thank you for being on the show, Alex. Um, you've you've definitely given us a lot of information, and I, I'm fascinated with with this work, and uh, we'll continue to be in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Hopefully, we can uh, do this in the future. I love talking about uh, about drug trends and uh, and really what's going on in the drug landscape in the United States. There's there's a lot going on. You could have, uh, as you know, you can have these podcasts every week or every month or every uh, or whatever, and, and they're different from year to year and as things start to change. So, uh, so for, thanks for having well, me, and I'm hoping that the listeners. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have you on, like, we'll have you again, you know, again, to, to catch us up maybe in six months or something, you know, like, you can be our, our, uh, our guy out there, you know, that, that sort of keeps us abreast of what's new. Um, and yeah, that would be cool. Um, but yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. Hey, thank you for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Christopher Moraf, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. And I'm your co-producer, Gareth Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Suhav. And Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. If you like the show, think we're cool, consider supporting us on Patreon. We are an ad-free program and would like to keep it that way. But that is not possible without support from viewers like you. If Patreon isn't for you, though, that's fine. You can still help us out by spreading the word. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. So let a few friends know about the drug podcast on the front line of drug news. And be sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Facebook, you name it. And be sure to have a very nice night.